0: Will you pray with me? O oh God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So at one of my previous churches where I served, I had the honor of leading preschool chapel in the sanctuary. And at one point, it was getting close to Holy Week, and so the assigned lesson was the Easter story. So as I'm thinking about, okay, how do I do this? These kids age range in age from two to five years old, right? These two-year-olds are all over the place. So I thought, ah, I'll just, I'll just cover some of the pews with blankets and create like a little tomb and they can go inside, right? And so I had it all set up and the kids came in. So I, I, I talked with them for a few minutes about how there was a surprise inside the tomb. And I told them that the women found the surprise when they went there early in the morning. So then I gave all the teachers a little note that said the surprise is that the tomb is empty. Because Jesus isn't there. He's risen, right? So then the teachers are to crawl inside the tombs with the kids and help them discover the surprise. So I thought it was going well. Everyone disappears into the the little tombs. There there are whispered discussions. And then the kids emerge so proud. They're bursting with news. And when everyone's gathered back in front of me, I say to them, so what did you find? What is the surprise? And before anyone could say anything else, there's this one kid who triumphantly holds up a small object and yells out, there was a crown in there. (laughs) It wasn't him. tomb is the surprise of the Easter story and the women go there so early in the morning they're carrying the spices that tomb is the place of memories for these ancient followers of Jesus so much the same way that a cemetery is a place of memories for us which is kind of funny right we go to gravesides carrying flowers or maybe even just to stand there for a few moments in respect And even though this place may not hold memories of the person when they were alive, just standing there at the headstone can flood us with the living presence of the dead. The tomb and cemeteries are transformed into sacred spaces for us because of the sacramental weight that they carry. It does remind me of the fire this past week in the Notre Dame Cathedral. You know, this is not the only church that has been destroyed, is it? I mean, we can think of countless other church buildings that that have, have gone through fires or tornadoes or or even shootings where that space has been marked by destruction. And there's something powerful and important for us in naming the grief that comes when a sacred space of beauty is somehow destroyed or marred or marked. So the women bring the spices to the tomb. And they do it as a sign of of respect, as a way to anoint Jesus' body to honor the dead. Because it's quite obvious, after all, that Jesus is dead. And usually, people who are dead remain dead. The women don't expect it to be any different this time. But I have to wonder what they're feeling in those moments. Because their beloved and fearless leader is dead, and he didn't just die a peaceful death. It was hard. It was belabored, tortured. It was an unjust death, a senseless death, and one that came too soon. And so I can only imagine that the women must have felt empty and not in a delightful, surprised kind of way, but, but rather in the kind of, of empty way when you feel def- defeated and sad and alone. They must have felt that kind of emptiness where there is a void that cannot be filled. That kind of emptiness where there's a hole that leaves your heart aching. I think they must have felt hollow, like there there can't be any more meaning or significance that can come out of this. They followed Jesus, they loved him, they believed in his message, and now he's dead. And not only is he dead, but it feels like their dreams are dead too. That everything they were following him for is poof, gone. You know, I think it's significant that at the very least, the women have the courage to go to the tomb under these circumstances, to walk toward this hollow emptiness. According to Luke's gospel, the male disciples are not there. Surely they must have felt the same hollowness, but for whatever reason, they are still tossing and turning in their beds or pacing the floors of their houses or drowning their feelings with some sort of distraction. And when I read this scripture, I recognize this hollow feeling, and I bet you do too, because I bet you felt it too. Perhaps we have felt it when someone who we love or maybe when we've experienced another sort of loss or maybe we have felt that hollow life feeling on the most ordinary of days when we just can't feel the sacred and we're not really sure if life has any meaning at all. The women go inside that empty tomb and they don't find Jesus' body. But instead of an immediate celebration and understanding with joy what this means, they just stand there, puzzled, like, we know, we know Jesus died, we know this is where they put him, we know his body should be here. And then these two men appear and they give them a message, and the message is the exact opposite of what they know is true. They watched Jesus die. They know that he was laid to rest in this tomb, and that's why that they are here, to pay respects to the dead. And yet the men are telling them not to look for the living among the dead, that Jesus isn't here because he's risen. And then they remind the women of Jesus' own words, that the Son of Man would be betrayed and crucified and then rise again on the third day. Words... It's just a message of words to awaken these women from their hollow life. And it's not even words from someone they know and trust. Rather, it's words from these two strange men who have suddenly appeared inside Jesus' empty tomb. And the message doesn't immediately convince them. You know, it's hard to change our minds about something we know to be true. It's hard. It would have been so much easier for the women to believe if Jesus himself had appeared to them. Or if they could at least hear his voice telling them that Christ is risen. You know, I think maybe the height of irony in this story is that the women receive the same thing that we do about Jesus' resurrection. A message of worship. It's a message of words, and we don't even have the benefit of having walked with Jesus in his lifetime. We don't even have the benefit of being able to actually stand there in the middle of the empty tomb, incredulous as we may be, and wonder what happened. No, we too just get a message of words about the story of Jesus. And sometimes that message comes to us from people who we know and trust, and other times that message of resurrection comes to us from complete strangers. When I'm surrounded by death, when I'm feeling hollow, when I feel like life is empty, it is very hard for me to believe a different narrative. That something could be better, that something could change, that life could be different. And so I can identify with this longing to have Jesus appear and straighten up the story. You know, I think back to when I was in college and I was trying to figure out if I was called to ministry, I longed for a message straight from Jesus himself to just make it clear. And I had a friend in college who always joked that if Jesus couldn't show up, she would at least appreciate a message that came from such a bizarre messenger that she would be unable to dismiss it. And so what she really wanted was for all the squirrels on our college campus to just start talking to her. It didn't happen. Instead, the women hear the message with words. And we hear the message with words. And then when the women are prompted to remember Jesus had shared with them about what would happen, it makes them just a little bit easier for them to believe. And they're starting to make sense of what those words meant. And so they become bearers of the message. And so they rush back to the other disciples and tell them what happened. And then the other disciples struggle. They don't believe the message. Their response is unbelief. Or maybe, as scholar Craig Coaster suggests, it's not that they don't believe, but that they believe something else instead. Their belief that Jesus is dead is so much stronger than their ability to believe that he lives again. And I wonder if it's that way for many of us too, that when we are faced with the message of new life, of new hope, of resurrection, our belief in something else often wins out. Because we see death, we see despair, we see destruction, and our experience tells us that death wins. But the Easter message, the message the women are proclaiming, flies in the face of everything we know to be true, because the Easter message is that Jesus lives. That death doesn't win. That hope has the final word. There is an amazing what if in this Easter story. What if this incredible message is true? What if life is stronger than death? What if? And in the story, Peter is the one who is captivated by the what if. He doesn't believe the women's message, but he is just enough curious to go to the tomb and see for himself, and he looks inside, and he notices the same thing as the women. It's empty. There's no body. There's just linen wrappings. And some of the translations, like the one that we read this morning, say that he goes home amazed at what had happened. And and this one kind of conveys to me that maybe he came to the point of believing But there's other translations that say he went home wondering what had happened. Think about the similarities and the differences in those two words. To be amazed and to wonder at something. There's there's similarities there. A sense of awe, a sense of curiosity. And yet there's also differences. That word wonder, I like that one. Because it opens the mystery the pondering the way the miracle might work on us slowly sometimes that message coming into our hearts the words playing out over and over in our minds what we have seen flashing what we have seen flashing in our mind's eye and we wonder what if what if what if? Easter message calls us from an old belief in death to a new belief in life. And maybe you are like Peter this morning, curious just enough about the message that you have heard to come and see, to wonder, to stand in curiosity and awe. The empty tomb turns the hollow life inside out and upside down. It makes me think of those hollow chocolate Easter bunnies. Some of you, I think, got one of those this morning when you came in. I don't know if everyone got one, but I know somebody was walking around with a little basket of chocolate bunnies. Now, I know this might seem like a trite transition, so hear me out, okay? The chocolate bunnies have been around at Easter time for a long time, and it's believed that Germany was the first country to make them, starting way back in the 19th century. And originally, all of them were solid chocolate. And then, the story goes that during the time of World War II, in the 1930s and 1940s, cocoa was being rationed. And so for a while, those solid chocolate bunnies went out of production altogether, but eventually they were brought back onto the market, and this time they were hollow because it was a way to make a chocolate bunny that used less cocoa. Now, with time, chocolate bunny makers became very creative. They started making gigantic chocolate bunnies. There was one American shop owner who made a five-foot-tall chocolate bunny as an advertisement for his shop. I think that would probably attract some attention. There were other manufacturers who made and sold, like, bigger versions of the chocolate bunny. And since they were hollow, they were still edible. Like, can you imagine eating a chocolate bunny that was, like, this big, that was solid? Like, you would break your teeth. It would be like biting into a brick. So the upside is that you can make more hollow chocolate bunnies for the money than you can make solid chocolate bunnies, And you can eat them easier. That's another upside. But the downside, of course, is that they're a little bit more fragile. And they're more prone to breaking when they're being transported. And so it just strikes me as interesting that this hollow chocolate bunny, which was born out of what we could call this kind of hollow and empty time in American life that might have felt a bit meaningless, has been transformed into a delicious symbol of Easter time. Like, how many of you have even gotten the chocolate bunny, and you didn't know whether it was hollow, or it had caramel inside, or maybe solid chocolate, and you you had this little sense of anticipation while you were unwrapping it, and you were just wondering, like, what is that first bite going to show? What is it going to taste like? That, That... It's been transformed into this delicious symbol of Easter that even invites our wonder and amazement and anticipation. And yes, too, the Easter message is fragile. It is sure prone to breaking down when being transported from one messenger to the next. There is an author, Max Vincent, who reminds us that as Christians, we always see the cross through the lens of Easter, and we always see Easter through the lens of the cross. In other words, we can't separate the suffering and the resurrection, but we can endure the suffering in our lives because of the hope of Easter. We can experience the joy of Easter even when we suffer. And so, if we say that life is hollow or empty, that it lacks meaning or significance at times, Or to say that the chocolate bunny is hollow or empty, that it symbolizes these penny-pitching days of the Great Depression, and yet it is transformed. To say that the tomb is hollow or empty, it's the greatest reversal of expectations that there has ever been. It means that what was once dead is now alive. It means the delight of finding that crown when you thought... The tomb was empty. Shel Silverstein writes these words. Listen to the mustn'ts, child. Listen to the don'ts. Listen to the shouldn'ts, the impossibles, the won'ts. Listen to the never-haves. Then listen close to me. Anything can happen, child. Anything. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Alleluia.